Welcome back to The Fighting Life. Today we're telling the story of Tommy Burns, the smallest man to ever hold the world heavyweight title. Tommy only stood at five foot seven, but that didn't stop him beating the top big men across three continents, and his world-conquering exploits saw him live up to his nickname, Napoleon of the Ring. But in 1908, he finally met his Waterloo, fighting Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion of the world. And after that loss, his achievements were dismissed and his name forgotten. Today we remember Tommy Burns. Chris, where does this story begin? Thanks, James. I guess it'll, it'll be no surprise to you that Tommy Burns had a tough upbringing. <laughs> that, that's the theme amongst the boxers we've spoken about and yep. most great boxers. The, the truth is, he, of the ones we've spoken about so far, he probably had the toughest. He was born in 1881 in Hanover, Ontario, and he was the 12th of 13 kids, and five of those kids died in infancy. Jeez. And it was, it was a small industrial town with the nickname Slab Town. There's all factories popping up, building furniture, and his father had a job as a cabinet maker, which sounds kind of, well, it could sound romantic. He's got his own little workshop, you know, crafting beautiful chairs. In reality, he's working in a factory and getting really poorly paid. So the family are moving fairly frequently, either to find work or to avoid the bills they can't pay. And often there's not enough food on the table. You know, Tom, Tommy goes to a school hungry. It's a really rough upbringing right from the start. And school was rough too. Uh, Tommy tells a story that at 10 years old, he fought for the bare knuckle boxing championship of his school. <laughs> they couldn't even spring for gloves for the kids. <laughs> and, and as the story goes, uh, parents and teachers were betting on the fight as the 10-year-olds fought. I mean... <laughs> yeah. I, I read a version of that story too from, from the Tommy Burns told. He didn't mention the gambling side of it. He said it was more just kids having their own fights. And he says he took on the, he was 10 and took over the 12 year old top dog at school and dropped him with a solar plexus punch and established himself. <laughs> Jeez, sounds like a prison. Yeah. And the story is that, that that fight, so obviously the fight was big enough to cause a hubbub at home. Because of that fight, he was pulled out of school. And there's two versions I've read again of, of why he got pulled out. One is that his mum was horrified that he was fighting, the other one is, that his dad thought, if you've got the energy to fight, you can earn some money for the family. And they put him to work in the furniture factory, polishing furniture. Right. But either way, he quit school not long after the age of 10 to earn money for the family. And things got even worse for him after that because his father died and his mum took up with another bloke who was a drunk and used to bash Tommy and was quite violent. He decided to get out of the family home and make his own way in the world. He wanted to make it as an athlete. Yeah, I've heard he was a good athlete. He played lacrosse. Um, pretty high standard at the time, uh, and he was a good skater, and he also played soccer. So f years later, he said the strength in his legs came from these sports. Reading about his lacrosse career, it was basically a warm-up for his boxing career. Right. He would often get sent off. He would throw down his stick and walk out from goals and knock people out. And when he did become a famed boxer, all the papers in Ontario carried stories about Remember, remember, this <laughs> remember this guy. And I should mention now, he was his given name was Noah Brusso. That was the name he started boxing under, and it was also his career in lacrosse. And there was a report in one paper that said, "The members of Walkerton Lacrosse Club should have no difficulty in recalling to mind the man who dealt so liberally in love taps and knockouts." Brusso seemed to have been sent as a scourge to punish the players for past and future sins. He's a terror. Yeah. 
it was widely agreed by the lacrosse fans that it was a good thing that he was now in a boxing ring instead of hitting people on a lacrosse field. <laughs> so he makes his way to Detroit and he starts fighting professionally in a ring. He starts as a middleweight and he has early success. He has around 20 wins, a loss and a draw. But his career hits a bit of trouble when he takes on a guy called Ben O'Grady. Yeah, he tells the story years later in the referee, an Australian paper. He fought this Ben O'Grady and he believed Ben O'Grady had been brought in to knock him out. This Ben O'Grady from Buffalo, because, you know, he's a Canadian guy knocking out all the local fighters. Some people took objection to it. So he is determined to smash this Ben O'Grady and, and, you know, do it fast. First two rounds, he's got him down six times. Third round, he drops him again. And Ben O'Grady does not get back up. He's out for 20 minutes. Wow. So he, he's rushed to hospital. Meanwhile... Burns is taken to a prison cell and he's facing manslaughter charges if Ben O'Grady doesn't wake up. And he's sitting in the prison cell and he said tears were just running down his face. Jeez. I mean, you feel, you'd feel guilty. About well, he's not so much guilty. No, <laughs> don't get me wrong. Burns is worried that his road to the title is finished there. Uh, right. He's sitting in his cell. He even, <laughs> he even says, curse the fellow. I murmured to myself at times, why did he not fight a better battle? <laughs> He's very upset that Ben O'Grady didn't put in a better show. He gets a little bit melodramatic about the whole experience. He said in the morning someone came and told him that Ben O'Grady had lived and he heard birds tweeting outside all of a sudden. He ran home and it was the happiest day of his life. He also changes his name not long after that incident. Some people say it was to spare his mother any humiliation, lest his name appear in the press. Other people say he wanted to get away from a woman. So, you know, that's up for debate. And obviously the name he chooses, Tommy Burns, an Irish name. There's a lot of tough Irish fighters around this era. You've got John L. Sullivan, uh, James Corbett, so you can understand why he did this. But he also decides to move up to heavyweight. When does he do this? That's a couple of years later, actually. So he's doing, still doing well at middleweight. It's around two years later. He has a fight against Jack Twin Sullivan, who is world middleweight champion, and he loses the fight. And... There's a thought that keeping down to that weight might have made it harder for him. But rather than step up to light heavy, he goes straight to heavyweight. And he goes straight to fighting for the title against the heavyweight world champion. So this is a strange time for the heavyweight division. Jim Jeffries has recently retired undefeated. And Marvin Hart is now the champion. How does Tommy Burns get a shot at the title? Hart just thinks he's an easy mark. Hart hasn't really defended his title. This is Hart's first defence since winning it or being given it by Jeffries for beating Jack Root. Jeffries was the judge of that fight, the referee, and he said, Marvin Hart, you're the champ now. Yeah. Have the belt. <laughs> it was a bit of a promotion. It was, he said later, oh, I didn't really think he should be champ. But I, you know, that's what happened, and Marvin Hart was considered the champ, even though he didn't have much currency and he didn't have much respect amongst the public. So he thought he'd get a bit more respect by putting Tommy Burns out in a few rounds. And being five inches taller and eight kilos heavier, he assumed he had it all over Burns. And does he have it all over Burns? Let me read the description from the referee. Never did a gladiator leave an arena of ancient Rome a more sorry-looking spectacle than was Marvin Hart at the conclusion of his 20-round bout with Tommy Burns. Hart had his nose and a rib broken, and his facial appearance resembled a sponge soaked in blood. And another report from the Evening World in New York. Hart's face presented a terrible sight, being a mass of blood, both eyes practically closed and his lips so swollen he could barely speak. 
Burns did not have a mark on him to denote that he had been engaged in battle, being as fresh and presentable in appearance as when he entered the ring. Well, so little Tommy Burns is now the champion of the world. <laughs> a five foot seven Canadian is now the title holder. How do Americans feel about this? Are they giving him respect? Americans aren't impressed by the victory. You know, you would have thought five, even even though Hart was considered not a, the most legitimate champ, the way that Burns dismantled him, I would have thought earned him huge respect. Instead, it just confirmed for everybody that Hart was a joke. They're like, well, so what? You know, this five foot seven Canadian beat a nobody. So then after that, Burns goes on and he fights two blokes in one night just to sort of prove his muscle, knocks out two heavyweights in one night, one round each. Again, people aren't impressed by that because it's a bit of a stunt. Then he has a fight against the light heavyweight champion of the world, Philadelphia Jack O'Brien. And this bloke is claiming to be the heavyweight champion of the world. And and people consider he also has a claim on the title since that's more legitimate than these guys that were just given the title by Jeffries. They fight to a draw. And most people think Burns won the fight. Again, people, no respect there. The people aren't excited for Burns. But there is a rematch. The The first fight had been filmed. And this is quite a novel thing. And I read in one paper that O'Brien studied the fight video. Right. This is a thing that's never happened before. The fighters can actually sit down and look at the fighter. And O'Brien talks about it, and it's good because we haven't talked about the style of Tommy Burns, really. So O'Brien's watching the video, and he says when he's looking at it, his footwork is wonderful. He reaches a long way with those short legs of his, and his positions and manner of advance and retreat make him always ready. He's the most dangerous heavyweight in the ring today. And he makes the point that he can't get away from him. He has to outmuscle him. He has to face, you know, fight fire with fire. Because Tommy Burns has a savage right hand. He says, next time I'll fight toe-to-toe. But that's, uh, that's the opposite of what happens, isn't it? Uh, O'Brien runs away. <laughs> it, this has to be one of the strangest fight stories I've heard. You know, O'Brien runs away the whole fight. And the reason becomes very clear after the fight. And it's all explained in the papers. But on the night of the fight, O'Brien gets in the ring and he thinks Burns has agreed to take a fall. Right. <laughs> so Burns has told him, I'm going to lay down for you. You know, the title's yours. He gets in the ring and Burns says, the deal's off. I've come to fight. <laughs> so, Imagine that. So O'Brien is not particularly ready and Burns is ready to kill. So O'Brien just runs for the whole fight. And the way this gets out into the press is because Burns goes and tells everybody. That's what I think is the funniest thing. Burns is so excited about his victory, he tells people, I knew O'Brien would be too scared to fight me unless he thought I was going to lay down. So I said I'd lay down, and then he got in the ring, and I got prepared to knock him out. Unfortunately, he didn't get the chance to, because O'Brien just legged it the whole time. So Burns does cement his claim on the world title by collecting belts. He fights uh, Bill Squires, an Aussie champ, with a string of knockouts. He destroys the best English fighter, a champion, Gunnar Moyer. And he beats the Irish champion, Jem Roche. That's my favourite one, the description I read of it. In one report it says, Just two blows were struck in what was advertised to be a 20-round World Heavyweight Championship bout in Dublin yesterday. Burns struck Roche and Roche struck the floor. <laughs> and like you say, he's, getting these, he's, he's collecting these belts but he still gets no respect. One person dubs him the Citrus King because of all these lemons he's fighting. And they talk him about, you know, he fights an Australian champion and beats him. And there's a paper that reports Tommy Burns alias Noah Brusso. And that's another thing. They always like to mention Noah Brusso. It's almost like a slide, like he's a pretender or something. 
Noah Busso has plucked another juicy lemon. The latest bunch of fruit squeezed by Chunky Tommy is Bill Lang of Australia. Burns put Lang away in the sixth round. Now, Bill Lang, whose real name's William Lanfranchi, was a tough heavyweight. You know, like, so he's beaten the best heavyweight in Australia, another bloke who later became heavyweight champ in Australia. So two Australian heavyweight champs. He's beaten the English heavyweight champ. He's beaten the Irish heavyweight champ. And he still gets no respect. It reminds me of uh, Rodney Dangerfield. I can't get no respect. He never gets any respect. And what do you think that is? What is? What was it about Burns that didn't earn him? I mean, he achieved so much. The what thing I, I think is it because he's five foot seven. I, I think that's part of it. You know, you've got this little guy. Like whereas some people see the underdog and love the underdog to win. In America, they had Jeffries was such a big presence in physical size. Yeah. And, and you know, and in and the media in the landscape, he'd been there for quite a while. You've got this little guy comes in and starts knocking out big guys. Like, I think if you love an underdog, that's a great story. Yeah. If you've if you're like a superhero, it's like who's this little guy? And the yeah. fact he's Canadian doesn't help, even though he fights with American colours sometimes. No one's falling for that. And I also think he was his own manager. He didn't have you know a savvy media manager. He was just there organising his own fights and getting as much money as he can. So there weren't stories. The stories that we've read and loved in the paper about, like, think about some of the stories. Sullivan and Corbett. Yeah, yeah. Sullivan, crazy stories. Corbett, you know, you've got someone presenting him as the gentleman. Yeah. Um, Fitz, you've got him, you know, fighting lions and hitting bears. Jeffries, you've got beating pneumonia with a case of whiskey. Burns, we've just got him fighting. They're the stories you find when you look in old papers. There's no myth around him. You know, mm. this plucky Canadian. So he's kind of dismissed. And I guess as well in in the glamour division, the heavyweight division, it's supposed to you you, you think about it having the superheroes. Well, the time they said it was like, an, well, especially with the white champs, they were they were a representation of American manhood and American power. That's yeah. why they didn't want to fight you know a black champion. It was all about American might. So to have a little Canadian, a sawn off Canadian there, it kind of undermines that. Yeah. The other thing I think, and this might be drawing a long bow, but I think at the time. This, you know, America's a growing industrial power. You know, the great white fleet is touring the world. At the same time Tommy Burns is touring the world, sometimes he'd follow them and fight in cities where the great white fleet, their navy, was visiting. So you've got this great industrial might, Americans showing their power, and then you've got this little Canadian. <laughs> you know, it doesn't quite fit doesn't suit, yeah. the projection of their power. Did he get any love in the press? There, there were a few instances that I could find. Um, there was one, the Spokane Press in Washington, yeah, someone wrote in 1908, the start of 1908, so he's you know, fought a lot of those champions. He wrote an article, this George Pulford, and it's called Straight Dope on the Latest Champion, and he runs all these quotes that he's attributing to the former champs, and this is what he's written. Tommy Burns is a dub, Jim Jeffries. Tommy Burns is a bum, Tom Sharkey. Tommy Burns is a joke, Jim Corbett. Tommy Burns is a laugh, John L. Sullivan. All the has-beens and the retired champion, Jim Jeffries, are calling the present international title holder names. What for? Are they jealous? Are they sore because Tommy has been getting the money? Or are they yelping because the champion isn't as big as they were when they were in the spotlight? Why is it that every something or another in the pugilistic line is sticking the gaff into the Canuck? Has the fact that he goes along fighting regularly upset the code of ethics established by the fellows who fought once a year and then took to the stage for an unlimited period? What has Burns done, and who is this new world champion pugilist that he should be on the receiving end for all this venom? And then he goes on to say that he has fought all comers. You know, he's beaten everyone in front of him. 
and he describes his fighting style. He says, Built on compact lines with every muscle in his sturdy body developed to the limit, Burns loves a fight. In the ring, he is a whirlwind. He can deliver an awful wallop with either hand from any angle. He loves the battering of close fighting, and his gameness has never been questioned. So there is some respect there. Yeah, good. <laughs> but generally, he's not a people, you know, he doesn't get the fame and accolades that other heavyweight champs have before him. And what about Burns himself? What does he think about this lack of respect? Yeah, Burns is very aware of that that perception about him being, you know, not much of a champ. And he talks pretty frankly about it in a letter just before he has the biggest fight of his career against Jack Johnson. And he says, I've been considered a joke all my career. And I suppose when I've trimmed Johnson, I shall not get any more credit than I did after beating Hart and O'Brien, who, as you know, were five to one and two and a half to one favourites, respectively, over me. Even Bill Squires was 10 to seven favourite over me. He was touted as the best man Australia had produced since the days of Peter Jackson, but when I beat him, they called him a lemon and a quince. <laughs> you've, mentioned, you've mentioned the famous fight with uh, Jack Johnson in 1908, and the common consensus there is that it was a humiliating loss for Burns. Is this what you found from your research? If you look at American papers, it was humiliating. It wasn't just humiliating for Burns, it was humiliating for the whole white race as the way they wrote it. But reading some of the Australian reporters who were ringside, there's no doubt that Johnson had it all over Burns. But there were people that looked at it and saw a five foot seven man who was giving away significant weight and who fought valiantly to the end. You see humiliating defeats in sport. I think it's when someone gives up or turns away or doesn't come out again. Burns came out from his corner every time, even late in the fight when he's already copped a drubbing. He's still rushing to the centre to meet Johnson. You know, like they say, it's full of courage. And I'll, I'll read a report that was in, written in the bulletin. So this is what C.A. Jeffries wrote. He said, After 11 rounds, Burns was in a horrible plight. His face was all puffed out on one side, his jaw hung down as though it were broken, and the blood oozed from his battered mouth. So, you know, there's no pretending that he was ahead here. But he goes on to say, Outgeneraled, overreached, overmatched in strength, insulted and treated like a helpless mouse by a great black cat he came up heroically to take his punishment he would fight to the bitter end and all that a man could do in the face of such overwhelming odds and in the midst of utter disaster noah brousseau did all the time he continued to attack to lead to try to force the fight it was magnificent but it wasn't pugilism and it was against all the tactics laid down in his own book so, you know, he's fighting, a, that's not a glowing endorsement of the way Tommy Burns was fighting. Mm. He was fighting bad tactically. He was in all sorts of aggressive. trouble. Yeah. yeah. And he, he, not mentioned there, but yeah, he was knocked down in the first round and it took a long time for him to even recover from that. But he, there were rounds where he sort of regathered his senses almost and had a, and rallied. But it's a, the picture that a lot of the Australian media had was as a guy that was just trying his darndest and was not giving up. And they sort of respected that. And even in the English media, I read a, a book where they talked about they got the press reports and it sounded horrendous. When they saw the video, yeah, he was outclassed, he was outgeneraled, as that man said, but he was there till the end. You know, and then they saw it the same way, a heroic in defeat, you know, brave, you know, going up and taking, taking a beating. You know? mm-hmm. So it was a really different perspective, you see, from the Australian and the English papers. And, and why were the American press so hard, do you think? 
well, as we said before, they never warmed to Burns in the first place, so he was already on the back foot there. But there's a, a there's a good writer, Bob Edgren. He was an astute boxing writer in the New York papers. He he predicted that Burns would trouble Philadelphia Jack O'Brien because he said, you know, Burns is shorter. O'Brien has trouble with shorter fighters. You know, he he knew how to read a fight, but he also understood the politics of fights. And he made the point in an article that he wrote ten years later. Very little has been said about Tommy Burns since he lost to Jack Johnson in 1908. The public was quite willing to forget the man who let the big black fellow through the door. And there's that idea that even Tommy Burns shouldn't have even given him a shot. And and, and people resented that fact. And he goes on to say, Tommy Burns' name seldom appears in print. Only those who had the fortune to see Burns in action know that he was one of the most remarkable fighting heavyweight champions we ever had. He was by far the smallest man that ever held the title, and when his disadvantages in height and weight is considered, some of his ring exploits are on a par with Jack Dempsey when Jack beat down gigantic Jess Willard a year ago at Toledo. Tommy Burns was one of the cleverest boxers ever seen in a ring anywhere, astonishingly fast, aggressive, and a tremendous hitter. Mm. And so there, there are people in the American press who did give him the glowing praise. So let's look at his achievements. Fastest KO in a heavyweight title fight. Defeated champions from four countries in their own backyards. Smallest heavyweight to ever win a title. Most title defences up until Joe Lewis. And the only one brave enough to take on Jack Johnson. Have we redeemed him? This will sound a bit silly, but I think um, I've decided Tommy Burns redeems himself, but not before he condemns himself. Right. And let, let me explain this. I, I stumbled on a letter that Tommy Burns wrote. It was on an auction website. And it was a letter he wrote to a friend in 1953. And he talks about the fight with Johnson. And you know how some people think he deserves a gold star for giving Johnson a shot? Yeah. You don't think that after reading this. You know, he says during the contest, race prejudice was rampant in my mind. The idea of a black man challenging me of the white race was beyond endurance. With that ruling my consciousness... I went out to kill. I surely did hate, which was the opposite of relaxation. Thus, I was tense and unable to defend myself. Johnson was the very opposite and naturally won the contest. I found that pretty fascinating, just a real clear view of the depth of prejudice he felt when he was fighting Jack Johnson. Yep. And I guess it also gives a motive as to why he fought such a tactically stupid fight. But then he goes on to write, this is at a time when he's now a preacher, and he's spreading the word of God. And he says that he realizes at the time there was no hate in Johnson's heart. And he talks about how later on they made amends. And he was glad that he was able to help Johnson out at one stage when Johnson fell on hard times. And then he writes, To me, Johnson was a champion of the first magnitude. He just had to be to outbox Tommy Burns. Okay, <laughs> okay he's still got the sin of pride. He's himself a pat in the back. <laughs> yeah, he can't help. But then he goes on to say how he's glad he lost the championship. He says... I realise today, and I want to thank Mr. Johnson for what he taught me that Boxing Day in 1908, and I now know he was a great teacher and not an opponent. Mm. So for me, that's pretty remarkable. A guy that has grown up stewed in racism at a time when, you know, that was the Every, fabric everyone, of the time. Yeah. And he's come out through that period, and he's not one of those guys that got old. He, oh, well, he's an old racist. He's a guy that saw a better way and spread that gospel to other people about loving your fellow man. Yeah. It's not exactly the end of a boxing podcast we normally go for, <laughs> but I think it's a pretty happy ending for Tommy Burns either way. That's a great way to finish the episode. 
please tune in for the last one in our series where we cover the life of Jack Johnson. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you know when the episode drops. Thanks for listening.